1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, guys, thanks so much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the uncertain road ahead for your money. And whether the summer sizzle for stocks is ending just as the Fed share readies the most important speech of his tenure. We discuss, debate all of that and what's at stake with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Michael Farr with me here on set, Josh Brown and Stephanie Link. Take you to the wall. I'll show you what the markets are doing at 12 noon in the east. It's a mixed picture. Dows down 128. S&P's flat, uh, fractional loser there. You got the Nasdaq uh, barely higher today by about 18. 299 is the is the yield on the 10-year note. So we're coming off a rough session the obvious question, Josh, is whether the summer rally uh, is over, whether the bear market is, is over. You emailed me yesterday with something I wanted to bring up for our viewers because I think it underscores your broad feeling on where we are. Quote, this is why we don't get excited about rallies taking place below the 200-day, especially when the 200-day is declining. This is why we don't get bulled up on a sub-VIX-20. Like clockwork, there's a vol explosion off that level every time. I think the bottom line with that is that you think we're still in a downtrend
2: yeah I mean th- th- those are the rules look when you're when you 're below the two hundred day specifically when that two hundred day has a negative slope, you should expect for there to be really big rallies like the one we 've just enjoyed last week was the first week the s p 500 finished down going back to uh, the week of july fifteenth so it 's been a really great run there 's no doubt about it. money has been made but if you're, if your disposition is changing based on that short-term rally, I would just say pull the lens back a little bit. And we've done this repeatedly on the show all year. I'll say it again. Um, When you're in that range of VIX 20, VIX 19, that is not the moment to say the coast is clear. Let me start adding to my longs or let me get more aggressive here because look how much money everyone else is making. Every single time we get to that level of of, uh, tranquility, something, it could be anything, bubbles up, And all of a sudden, bang, you're back. VIX up 20%. You're back up at 23, 24. Now, that's not the end of the world for most investors. Like, they can can weather that. So I'm not trying to paint this picture that it's all bad. I just think it's really important that we acknowledge there doesn't have to be a breakout to the upside or the downside. It's very likely that we get trapped in this range. What you don't want to do is systematically buy the top of that range because you mm-hmm. get excited, mm-hmm. your stocks are working out, and then sell the bottom of that range because you're in shock. I can't believe how fast but, this just fell apart. But you're suggesting
1: that the 15, 17% rally off of the mid June low wasn't confirmation of anything no. for you? No. That, that's, that's, I think, the, the bottom line. So it didn't it, confirm anything. To change your opinion on the overall place that we find ourselves in.
2: No. So the the big picture for me, and I I try to I try to give this advice to to anyone who will listen, the absolute worst thing you can do right now in a trendless market is label yourself. I'm a bull. Oh, I'm a bear. That kind of that kind of mentality forces you to see this muddied picture, both technicals and fundamentals, and because you, you put on a uniform. Um, You're always looking to find either the best or the worst in every data point. I think it's a, a, a terrible disposition to have in a market like this. So I would very gladly change my tune if, in fact, we get to a place where we're seeing lower highs. We break out of that downtrend. The market consolidates the recent gains. And then lo and behold, looking at a 10-month moving average, for example, we start to see a flattening out of the trend or even uh, uh, an uplift. I would love to tell you, hey, I'm feeling better right now on price action. And then people say, well, price action, what about the fundamentals? What about the earnings? What about the macro, oil, interest rates? You have to assume that the market's not completely stupid. All of that, all of that data is being processed on a second-by-second second basis by the smartest people in the world and the best-written software in the world. So just understand, it's unlikely that you're going to produce some big insight from the fundamentals that we haven't already chewed up and digested. So, how, how do you view it, Dan? <laughs> right, Steph, I mean, do, do you agree? I'm sorry, with that? I'm wearing is my there... jeans today. I'm very aggressive. I mean, I'm fundamentals sorry.
3: matter, it, it, please, please.
2: They, they
1: matter, but I think part of the point is to suggest that the fundamentals haven't matched up with the with the move in the market. Okay, Uh, you can't really argue that they have.
3: Well, I mean,
1: try. I'm going to try. It sounds like you want to try. I
3: do want to try. No, look, right, do I think it, we're going to be in this choppy environment, very much like what you're seeing on the technical side of things, right? I think we had sentiment that got way too extreme. We had the perception that the Fed pivoted, which I never believed, right? And we had some decent economic data. So all of that happened in, Ju- in June and July, right? I mean, the data, I know housing is rolling hard, but industrial production was better than expected. Yeah, but still Retail met. sales were better than expected. They were flat. D- up double digits year over year, up 12.3% ex-auto, right? That's all, so all price, Stephanie. Jobs, all of it, right? So I'm just saying all of these things combined are the reasons why we rallied, I think.
1: But see, to your first point, we sentiment got so negative. Yes. We were so oversold. Um, so the market was due for a rally. Right. It's that next leg post-Powell right. that seems to well, be the real question the mark. Problem, well, we were, was yeah. the NASDAQ worthy of a 10% move off of the Powell presser. Well, I think Was the- S&P worthy of an 8% move off the Powell presser, because that seems to be where we're questioning ourselves after the minutes came out, looking ahead to the end of the week in general, But I think
3: earnings also came in a little bit better than expected, up 10.3% year over year. I think people were thinking that earnings were going to collapse, and they didn't. And people thought that we were going to, we were already in a recession, massive recession, right? Right. But the data is telling us we're slowing, but we're not in a recession yet. 2023, different story. We can have a different conversation. Here's the thing. Inflation is everywhere. And I know we talk about and I know we talk about wages, right, being really sticky. Look at natural gas prices up at a 14-year high. Oil has stopped going down, by the way. Food is up 13% year over year. So inflation is everywhere. Wait, I thought you were telling me the fundamentals improved. They, no, no, no. I'm just telling you the inflation <laughs> hasn't improved, okay. right? That's a big part of it, though. It, it's
1: the biggest part of it.
3: I know, but that's why I'm saying we're going to chop around because the Fed is going to raise rates because inflation is so high. But the data is not saying that we're in recession yet and earnings are hanging in. So it's not all gloom and doom. Can I it's your question. Do
2: you agree with me? Do you agree with me that one of the most important components to the real economy is real estate, and that yeah. unfortunately, housing prices take about historically 18 months to filter their way into CPI. And if that's true, um, that, sh- that we haven't even seen all of. The pain from shelter costs, owner's equivalent rent, like that's still, that could still be a year from now before we've worked that through the system. Mm
3: -hmm. That's that's got to be. Rents are 30% of CPI. That's just, that's your answer right there. Yes, it's very, very sticky and it's going to be a pressure. What's
2: What's gas prices? 10%? Yeah. Okay. So it's, so you're right. I agree with you. Inflation is everywhere and sticky. So if that's the backdrop, throw my technicals out. If you just knew that one thing, it's really tough to say that at seventeen and a half times, uh, and we've had multiple expansion this summer. Right. It's really tough to say we've seen all of the the pain that.
3: But that's why we're going to gonna be in a in, choppy environment. In other environment, words, right? We're going to be in a trading range, it, and that's what we are. And in, we just it, bounced. We,
1: we both agree. In, in other words, um, don't fight what the Fed is still going to do. Liz Young, is that what the the bottom line end, ends up being? And that and that's why. There's so many questions about the state of the market, given the rally is what still lies ahead. Fed likely to be haw- Powell likely to be hawkish on Friday. Balance sheet runoff, please, barely started. And it's going to continue and it's going to continue and continue. And that's going to tighten financial conditions in a way that investors haven't seen quite yet.
4: Yeah, well, there's there's a lot to talk about here. So first of all, the narrative yesterday shocked me in the sense of suddenly it was like oh my god this is the beginning of the end and then if we turn around the narrative quickly changes to this is the first day of the rest of our lives and it's it's not that clear cut we are going to have volatility until and unless inflation actually starts to moderate and we get a message from the Fed that they're going to take their foot off the gas a little bit what we saw from June 16th until maybe the end of last week was a rally that was predicated on the Fed slowing down or being satisfied with the way things were going and now leading into Jackson Hole, the expectation is that the Fed either stays just as hawkish as they've been or becomes more hawkish. So we're seeing volatility into that and I think that's natural. The market got up to 18.3 times forward earnings. That was way too far given where we are and given that we haven't actually made a ton of progress yet. So if we see a sell-off for the rest of the week, I would expect a little bit of a relief rally. This is a type of market that anticipates and then gets relieved when the actual event is over. I'd expect a little relief rally at the end of the week. Mm. That said, I think the Fed is going to continue to err on the side of too much rather than not enough. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember in September, that balance sheet runoff is going to double in size. So they may not have to do 75 basis points because they've got it coming from both directions. We may get 50, but it's going to be 50 and then probably another 50. So they're not necessarily slowing down on this anytime soon. And I think the market still has to digest that in a lot of different ways.
1: It's like 50 with a steroid injection on top of the 50 because of, of the balance sheet. That's right. Michael Farr, Bernstein, market bottom not in yet. Mike Wilson, I still believe we're in the midst of the bear market. Guggenheim stocks in trouble if the S&P fails to break above its 200 day got right on the nose, as Josh was talking about, couldn't get over it. And that's why technically we are still in a downtrend. So how do you see things relative to what you heard from everybody else?
5: I agreed with everybody, which is uh, the easiest, easiest thing I can do. I mean, there are certainly constructive things and some of the fundamentals that are still holding in. Okay, we're still seeing top line growth. We've seen those companies that had pricing power that Steph's been talking about all year long. They're holding up. Josh isn't wrong here. And there was a great factoid on CNBC Pro yesterday. Every time there's been a bear market since 1929 where the S&P fell more than 10%, there's been a rally of 17.2% on average over the next 39 days before resuming the decline. S&P's rallied 18% off the bottom and it's over 35 days. We're fitting an old pattern here historically. Point number two, and this is my last one. I'll shut up because I know Prashant wants me to be fast today. Uh, The Fed is still changing the price of money. They're still changing those interest rates. You can't run, really, your full discounted cash flow model when you're trying to figure out valuations on stocks until you have that interest rate number. So if we look at 4% earnings growth out of Goldman Sachs for next year for the S&P 500, to get more than 4% return from stocks, you have to have a P.E. multiple expansion. It would take sentiment. It takes an expanding economy and everything else. I think that the road still points to a choppy road, mm-hmm. and perhaps the worst is behind us, but I think you've got to be ready still for some tough days ahead. What if,
1: what if there's not enough belief, Josh, that inflation is going to... Uh, moderate enough on its own that the Fed is not going to have to do as much. Ultimately, Marco Kalanovic, JP Morgan, uh, by the way, he's with us tomorrow. i trying to get that guy on for a long time, and he's finally going to be with us tomorrow. And I cannot wait for that. Uh, he put it. There it is. He put a note out um, yesterday that said, quote, we maintain that inflation will resolve on its own as distortions fade and likely drive a Fed pivot while a stronger uh, second half recovery in China should provide support for the global cycle. He's been more bullish than most. He's been steadfast, he hasn't wavered, and he continues to hold uh, that position. What if he's right?
2: I think ultimately he can be right. I just think it's too early. Understand the way that these headline numbers work. They're, They're a comp over last year. And the months that are about to roll off out of the CPI or PCE calculations were actually pretty tame inflation months. Like, the, like, we're, we're not really, really going to get to the point where the year over year feels better just on the data. But then there's this whole other uh, layer, which is the sentiment. You could tell people till, till, till you're blue in the face, it's not a technical recession. There are still so many jobs. Um, the earnings are, are holding up. There's no widespread uh, distress. credit. People don't care if they feel as though things have changed and they're getting worse, and, and they feel as though they should be spending less or they should be laying off employees. If that's how people feel, then that's how it is. And all of the data in the world is not going to change sentiment. Sentiment has to shift. I don't see any sign that it's going to. Um, they, they did a survey of CFOs. Mm-hmm. 50% of CFOs say that layoffs are in their plans for the next 12 months. Like it doesn't have to happen. But if enough people believe that's what's going to happen, then that's where we are. So so
1: even if let's say Kalanovic is right and inflation uh, resolves on its own, those those are the words that that he uses. That may be true, but the Fe- it's going to take a while and the Fed's not going to wait around no. to see if, if in fact that happens. They're going to tighten and then they're going to tighten and then they may wait and see around if it resolves itself. Um, that's an issue for things like tech, which has been beaten up lately. Dan Niles on Tech Check last hour, quote, this is going to be a long, punishing journey, which yeah. is the reason why he's been more negative tech than most.
3: Rates are up. Long duration assets underperform. Does that
1: change anytime soon?
3: No, I don't think so, because, infl- because what you just said, inflation is everywhere and it's going to be persistent.
1: But then why, we have-, get a core well, then why have those stocks that- been going
3: up? Well, Inflation. I mean, I,
1: rates are up. Inflation is we everywhere. That was hiking. We got
3: oversold and the data wasn't horrible in terms of the economic situation. Right. And people did think that the Fed pivoted for whatever reason. Again, I don't I didn't believe it. But these are all these things. Plus, you're down a lot. Everybody was offsides too. Right. And so, yeah. So we had a bounce. We're going to be choppy, though, because the fundamentals at the end of the day matter. And inflation is part of the fundamental story. Well, I don't think it's gloom and doom everywhere. That's the problem right now. And you're going to get a core PCE number on Friday, even if it comes in at four point seven, which is the expectations versus four point eight last month. That's still darn high. Two percent is what they want to see, and that's going to take a very long time to see that number come down. And so, I think we're in this slog for a while. That's why I say it's choppy. So,
1: I mean, is it is it dangerous to own tech here, Liz Young? I mean, Nvidia down eight percent in the last week. They've got earnings in, in another day. Uh, Meta down eight and a half percent. Steph. Yeah. Uh, Alphabet down six. Microsoft down five. Amazon down seven. Uh, You know, Apple had a tough day yesterday. That stock right now, as we pull it up right here, which I typed it incorrectly, but I will do it right this time, (laughs) is now at 167. So it was like, what, 174? Liz, can you own tech right here and now, or now is it dangerous again?
4: If your time horizon is six months or less, I think it's dangerous because the Fed is going to continue hiking through the end of this year. Tightening is going to continue happening through the end of this year. If you want to get in as an entry point in tech right now while it's under pressure and then hold it for two to five years, I think it's probably okay. But it's really dependent on that. And one other point I would make is that Even people out there that are bullish through the end of the year are not completely unhinged, right? Some of the the highest price targets on the street are about 4,800. That would give us less than a 1% annual return and all it requires is another 15 percent from here. And if inflation keeps coming down and we get a rally after midterms, I think that's pretty reasonable as an expectation. We'd get to the end of the year with maybe up one percent. I think we'd all be happy with that. I
1: think anything close to the flat line would be viewed (laughs) as a massive win. Uh, Michael Farr, last word about tech, and then I got to take a break.
5: You know, I I think that we've watched tech lead this market and the big market cycles all the way through. On the downside, the NASDAQ got killed and was was really, a lot of people got hurt. Those folks in the speculative tech names really got decimated. Uh, Some of these tech funds hugely, I mean, just got ruined, right? So they bounced back hard. Probably better to find an exit point here as the Fed continues to persist with what they're doing. Longer term, if you're going to own tech, and I do, I'm owning those companies with solid balance sheets that are increasing earnings, that have a, a good cash flow. Uh, these are companies that you stay the storms and you benefit over the long term. So I, I agree with Liz. Short term, it's going to be dicey. If you're a long term holder, there's some great companies there. You could probably get them at better prices here in the next couple months.
1: All right, Let's bounce for a couple minutes. Come back with an exclusive interview with famed short seller Jim Chanos. Responding today to Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong's interview with our very own Kate Rooney. We'll talk about that next halftime back in 2 minutes.
6: Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises with an industry leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate. We keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help
0: your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers,
1: Right, we are back and it was back in March during an interview with me in overtime that famed short seller Jim Chanos first revealed he was betting against shares of Coinbase. Chanos arguing at that time that he expects fees to be compressed as competition in the crypto trading space increases. Today, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong responded to Mr. Chanos during an interview a short time ago with
7: CNBC's Kate Rooney. I think there's the short and the medium term and then there's the long term, right? Um, short term, we have not seen any fee compression to date, so that's that's good. Um, I we generally we see that, especially our retail customers, they're not super price focused. They they want to use the app that is, it's trusted, it's easy to use. They're not going to lose their money. It has the products, the assets, and the payment methods, and you know the additional functionality around staking and you know NFTs. And there's so many new things happening in crypto, especially on the retail side, that it just it hasn't become commoditized yet, right? Now, you know, if you look at other um, products that we have, our exchange and things like that, these are professional investors that are, you know, high frequency. They're trading bips and matter of every kind of trade, these market makers and things like that. So I think that that could change a little bit over time. But again, it hasn't we haven't seen anything dramatic.
1: All right. Jim Chanos joins us now in an exclusive interview to react to that interview. Welcome. It's good to see you again. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm good, thanks. So what is your response to what you heard from uh, Armstrong when he was asked about you directly?
6: Well, that's kind of the, the, the scary thing um, about this story is that we have not seen retail fee compression at Coinbase yet. In fact, their actual uh, dollars per transaction on the retail side was up year over year slightly. Um, to a little over uh, uh, 1.3% from a little over 1.2% per trade. Um, That compression is still ahead of them, as I think he actually sort of, you know, uh, acknowledged. Um, The problem, of course, is is that volumes have dropped. And when I spoke to you at the end of March, the 2022 revenue estimate on the street was 7.4 billion dollars. It's now 3.5 billion dollars. So on a revenue basis, even though the stock's been cut in half, um, you know, so is the revenue estimate. Um, in, in that, this is still an incredibly expensive stock for a company that that let's be clear is losing a billion dollars a quarter. Mm-hmm. So. And, and- And at the end of the day, that's the real problem.
1: Yeah. So it was interesting um, listening to Armstrong because it was, in a sense, agreeing with your thesis that, you know, ultimately fees and margins were going to come down. He countered that, though, with the, the belief that they are diversifying their business to services and subscriptions in a way that it's going to offset whatever compression takes place. What's your reaction to that notion?
6: Yeah, services and subscriptions uh, was one hundred and forty seven million dollars in the in the second quarter. That's been flat for four quarters. It's not growing. Um, and so it's it's a wonderful thing to sort of have you look elsewhere into the core business, which is, of course, declining. Um, but but services and subscriptions is not growing. It's been one hundred and forty some million dollars plus or minus for the last four quarters. Mm. So, I, you know, that's the problem here: is that almost all the drivers are under pressure, and yet, and yet, the stock trades at a stratospheric valuation relative to other broker dealers. Um, if you take a look at at, uh, at say Robinhood or even Liz Young's SoFi, I mean, they trade at at, at, at slightly over one times tangible book, um, and and the tangible book value at Coinbase is about twenty dollars a share, but it's going down at the rate of four or five dollars a share per quarter. So coinbase is going to have a tangible book of about ten dollars at the end of the year um, trading at better part of seventy or eighty dollars right here um, losing still losing over a billion dollars a quarter. but what, what if what if they I mean they maintain that you know they'd like to
1: get to a place where you know s- revenue from services and subs can be fifty percent of the business. Whether that's a pipe dream or not, time is going to ultimately tell uh, the story there. It's about 18 percent of their revenues now. This comes to a simple uh, disagreement or maybe not so simple. Of uh, You just don't think that they can get anywhere close to that point because you point out that where the growth is now, uh, it's not uh, rising anywhere to the level that you, can, you think they can get there in the, in the near future, if
6: at all. Well, there's two ways they could get to 50 percent. <laughs> One way is bearish, obviously. Um, But but let's just do this thought experiment, because a lot of people say, well, look at what they earned in in 2021. If you got Coinbase back to 2021, the halcyon days of revenues of seven point eight billion dollars and you put today's cost basis on that, they would be earning about six hundred million dollars pre-tax. Today's cost basis X restructuring is running about a billion eight a quarter. So that's seven point two billion dollars. That would be six hundred million in pre-tax, about four hundred and fifty million after-tax. And because the share count keeps exploding, um, we'll get to that in a second. That would be about two dollars, give or take. That's if they got back to last year's level of revenues. They would be earning two bucks. And 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 again, you have a stock at at whoever it is, seventy-five. Um, that is excessive for a company that, in reality, is losing four or five dollars per quarter right now, and 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 that's it. It's a risk reward type of situation. Uh-huh. Investors are taking huge amounts of risk here for what I think will be paltry levels of reward, and that's of course before we get commission compression. That 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 before all of this. It's it's interesting. You know, you, you've you maintained
1: uh, from the very beginning, and I think on the, the day that you revealed this with me in, in overtime, that this call of yours is not necessarily a call on crypto prices, oh. although in some sense it, it, it in some sense it's tied with it. Obviously, if if the crypto winter continues and crypto prices continue to be depressed and trading volumes remain depressed, obviously their revenues and those of other platforms and exchanges that deal in the business are, are going to be Hurt, you also said during a, a podcast that I, I checked out, quote, it was a call on what we thought was a sort of ancillary predatory business model. That's an interesting comment that that sort of alleges sort of something unseemly going on uh, at Coinbase when you use predatory business model. Can you expand on what exactly you mean by
6: that? Well, it it was in reference to their high commission costs. Um, We now know that the SEC is investigating other aspects that we had no knowledge of, and we'll see what happens on that. But it really revolves around the point at the beginning of our discussion, Scott, they're charging 1.3 point something percent uh, uh, per transaction to retail customers. That doesn't sound a lot, but it basically means it's almost a 3 percent cost round trip on a trade. Three percent round trip on a cost per trade, as Josh Brown can tell you, if you start trading three or four times a year in and out of Bitcoin or Ethereum or or whatever have you, uh, that starts to add up. That's 10 to 12 percent a year in just transaction costs. And I don't know that any retail investor is going to be able to offset 10 or 12 percent a year in transaction costs. You have to be awfully right then to earn a return in what might be a zero sum game. So that's why commissions ultimately are going to come down. And all the players that are coming into this place, including their partner BlackRock and others, are going to do nothing but pressure those rates down. That's what I meant. Okay.
1: You know, you mentioned Josh, he's sitting here today and he was a Coinbase shareholder. uh, So I know he has some take on uh, your comments, those of Armstrong and the overall situation. I'd like to bring him into the
2: conversation. Hey Jimmy, good to see you. Yeah, I, I did trade the stock uh, a while back. Um, I I agree with you, and I think like this is the fundamental thing that the the retail audience that's so enthusiastic about crypto, and they look at Coinbase as like a proxy for here comes Wall Street. The thing that they they don't seem to acknowledge, or maybe don't understand, or don't care about, but to me, I, I feel like is is uh, the strongest part of your argument is that. Let's hope here comes Wall Street isn't true, because that's 10 basis point trading. Like right. they, they, that's not a great business. institutional brokerage is not a cash gu, uh, uh, gushing business. So if if we t- if if we look at the history of broker dealer business models, like even just look at the dot com uh, uh, companies like DLJ Direct and Waterhouse before it came, became TD, ultimately, those retail rates collapsed down closer to where the institutional rates are. It never goes the other way. So they're not going to make m- right. So they're not going to make more money trading with hedge funds. They're definitely going to make uh, less money trading with retail. So this argument that like, oh look, BlackRock's in, and now here comes Goldman, and this one's in, and that one's in. All that That's means fair. is guaranteed fee compression. There's almost no way around it.
6: And and just to amplify that point, and 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 an earlier point that Scott made. Paradoxically, their institutional rates continue to decline. And so in the second quarter of 2022, Coinbase was charging retail accounts 60x per trade, what they were charging institutional clients. A year ago, it was 40x. So they're actually charging retail an even higher cut relatively uh, on their flow than, than they were a year ago. Which I have to say I'm surprised at. Hmm. And and but it doesn't it doesn't obviate my concern which there's only one way that's going ultimately, which is, is lower. Stephanie
1: Link is here as well. She was a former uh, holder of those shares, too. Do you have have a question for Jim?
3: Yeah, Jim. So you mentioned volumes fell last quarter. Um, They also guided lower on users and take rates remain very subdued, Um, but they also lowered uh, expense guidance by four and a half to five and a half billion. It sounds like you think that they need to have a major reset on the expense side. Do you think they will?
6: So we think they're going to have revenues somewhere around five hundred million dollars um, in in the third quarter, which will be down again pretty pretty sharply sequentially from I think about eight hundred million in the in the uh, third quarter second quarter. Uh, they've got to bring expenses down. I mean, they just can't keep them. At, at, they can't keep losing a billion dollars a quarter. But here's the here's the one of the interesting things. They guided to in effect four hundred million of share based comp in the third quarter. And this is something we are seeing in things like Zoom and DoorDash as well, that increasingly um, these companies are having to offer even more share-based comp because a lot of the share grants and restricted stock units they granted a year ago to their employees are so underwater. And, and so think about, think about the fact that they're going to have 400 million in share-based comp out of 500 million in revenues in the third quarter. That's 80% of revenues will be just from share issuance. Um, I've never seen anything like that, mm. and and, 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 it, and it just it gets to the point that these companies in Silicon Valley are issuing so much paper now in the form of comp to try to keep their adjusted EPS up because, of course, they had that back, and and in the case of DoorDash and then Zoom last night, we actually saw that these companies are now having to buy back stock, um, hitting their cash flow to to offset the uh, share insurance so that they keep their share counts constant. Um, last night, Zoom told us they, uh, they had $250 million of share-based comp and $290 million in buybacks. Um, similar uh, numbers for DoorDash a few weeks ago. So, uh, you know, that's a problem if Coinbase has to start then buying back stock to offset dilution. Um, the $5 billion uh, cash hoard or $6 billion cash hoard, mm-hmm. which uh, I guess Mr. Armstrong talked about using for acquisitions. Will start declining just to buy back stock, so he doesn't get to three hundred or four hundred million shares outstanding.
1: Hey Jim, you you mentioned um, Zoom here, um, and perhaps not by accident. Um, I understand that you are and have been short uh, Zoom, and you remain such uh, as we have this conversation. Is that correct?
6: Yeah, we've been. If you follow me on Twitter, you you know I've been tweeting about Zoom for a long, long time. Um, yeah, again, another poster child uh, for for what we think are, are the accounting anomalies in share-based comp. Um, and, and while we, of course, thought it would be, be hurt by the uh, uh, you know, work from home burst ending, uh, you really have, a, again, a situation here where the company is saying it's earning $3 in some sense, uh, uh, adjusted EPS. But last night, share-based comp was, uh, I think, close to 80% of, uh, of their adjusted earnings. Um, and, and on a gap earnings basis now, they're earning about a dollar twenty um, and, and on a run rate. And so the stock at eighty four or it's still at seventy times. and 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 so we've got to get away from, particularly in these tech companies, just swallowing this adjusted EPS number mm-hmm. because increasingly now it's the tail wagging the dog,
1: Hey, Jim. I'm not sure if you've heard this sad news uh, that is just crossing uh, the wires that we've now confirmed that Julian Robertson, Uh, has passed away at the age of 90. Of course, the founder of Tiger Management. There there are legends uh, of Wall Street, uh, Jim, and then there's Julian Robertson. And I'm just curious, and I'm sorry if you hadn't heard this news, and I'm just breaking it uh, to you. Um, But I'd love your reaction, your thoughts, if if you knew him. Um, And he really is one of the icons of Wall Street.
6: I had the pleasure to run money, run short accounts in the 90s, for not only George Soros and Michael Steinhardt, but but Julian Robertson. And I just have to tell you that, that when it came time to interacting on stocks, there was no one better than Julian Robertson. And there's a reason that the Tiger Cubs all came out of his shop. Um, he would have you over for lunch, and if you were pitching a short idea, uh, and he would have you w- against uh, eight bulls and vice versa. Um, and 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 just challenge you on every part of your thesis, which is the way really professional investors should do it. I mean, he was he was a portfolio manager, portfolio manager, but he also understood analysis, and um, there was no one better in that. Mm-hmm. And I've said that for years. I, I'm really sorry to hear that news. Yeah, I I'm, mean, I'm, you you you,
1: know. you mentioned the the so-called tiger cubs, the the Robertson family tree, if you will. You yeah. think anybody has had as profound of an impact? On the lives of others who have gone on to have jobs on Wall Street as he has. I mean, it, it's so prolific, the number of yeah. Tiger Cubs who are out there still doing their thing today.
6: Yeah, certainly on the buy side. I mean, I, I, and, and, and so it's hard to think of anyone who had a bigger impact uh, on, on today's market participants than uh, in that respect, in the equity side, than Julian. And uh, he I'm just so sorry. My condolences to his family and loved ones and associates. It's sad news indeed. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Uh, I'd like to come back and I'd like to chat with you more uh, about some other stock positions, the markets at large. But again, Julian Robertson, the true titan of Wall Street, dead at the age of 90. We're back after this. All right, we're back now with legendary short seller uh, Jim Chanos. Jim, I- I'd like to turn our attention, if I could, to AMC. Uh, obviously, oh in, the, in the news lately, and uh, especially <laughs> yesterday, of course, this new class of stock uh, that the prefers. Um, put us up to date, if, if, if you would. Are you, are you short? Are you still short, AMC?
6: Well, I'm glad I'm, glad I'm doing this from an undisclosed location uh, <laughs> that, that, that may be ape-proof. Um, so we actually just initiated an AMC short. We were short last year, covered. Uh, we just initiated a new position yesterday. Oh. Um, however, and, and just calm down, apes, um, I'm actually an AMC security holder on the other side. We actually bought the new ape preferred, and we have shorted the, the, uh, the AMC comment against it. They are economically the same security. They are not freely convertible into each other, but they are economically the same security. And uh, and, and there seems to be a lot of confusion about that. Um, the company can go out now and issue new preferred uh, to finance itself or pay down debt or make acquisitions. But functionally, uh, the two securities are the same. And, uh, and I would guess the apes will be putting pressure on Mr. Aaron. Uh, if the discount continues to make it freely convertible sooner rather than later. Um, but but, you know, one's at six and one's at 10 or what, wherever they are right now, um, that that spread is is economically in arbitrage. You think they should be the same price? They should be. Uh, I think they should be the same price um, or, or roughly the why same. Why would price. you
2: why would you rather have the preferred versus the the original share? What like why is one better than the other or you're just counting on them to close?
6: I'm counting on them to close okay. in effect that I think they'll ultimately all be the same class. Um, and and uh, I think that, that at the end of the day, the economic interest in ownership is one for one. There's a there's a, a great uh, frequently asked questions section on the AMC website that I would urge the apes and others to do to just read about what this security is. It's very clear. Adam Aaron has made it very clear and, and in effect, uh, all of the shares, both in the common and in the preferred, will share in the upside of the enterprise or downside in the, of the enterprise. So they shouldn't be trading at, at you know, a 30 percent discount. If,
2: if you weren't a professional investor, if you were uh, if you were the CEO of AMC, wouldn't you, wouldn't, wouldn't you say like if you were in that seat? He's doing he's playing with a really tough hand. It's a movie theater chain in a pandemic. Like, wouldn't yep. you say he's pretty much done everything that one man could conceivably do to save this business? Like, even if you don't like the structure, et cetera. Yeah. Don't you feel like he's doing what he's supposed to be doing? I, I literally, Jim, before you answer that, I, I, I was going to go there myself. I, I think it's
1: uh, I think it's a really good question that, that Josh uh, poses is that criticize him. Uh, as much as anybody would like to do. And certainly he's endured a lot of criticism throughout the last couple of years. He's just taking advantage of an environment that has been put in front of him at the dinner table and taking full advantage of what any good steward of capital for a, as a CEO would, would do in, in this environment.
6: I, I I would agree with that up to a point. Um, and, and because, again, he's doing it at the I believe, at the expense of his shareholders. He's, he's trying to save the corporation. And, and it's, it's, it's actually, it's a really interesting governance question beyond, I think, the, the, the purview of our discussion today of what do you do to save the corporation even if, if it's on the backs of your shareholders who own the corporation, number one. Number two, let's not forget, Mr. Aaron arrived here in January of 2016. And much of, of what got this company in trouble was his aggressive... Uh, uh, approach to the movie theater business from 2016 to 2019, taking on a lot of debt, making acquisitions in a business that was already declining. So, you know, he's putting out a lot of fires here, but a lot of those fires he helped set. Well, as you
1: said, you know, as long as as his shareholders, apes or or, or whoever, uh, continue to bid this stock up uh, in, in, in this particular environment, They are, in a sense, giving him the opportunity to I hear you in suggesting that he's taking advantage of them, but they are giving him the opportunity to do such uh, if one believes that that that's in fact what he's doing by continuing to to bid up the stock. Let let, let me do this. Before I let you go, let me get your broad uh, opinion on on where we are in the market. Uh, We've talked many (laughs) times about the the Fed um, and what your expectations are. Um, yeah. What do you make of the, the rally at this particular point where you expect stocks to go and how you're broadly positioned today as a result of your view?
6: So so our hedge fund is has been on either side of, of neutral for most of the year. It's been vacillating, you know, based on some tactical signals we get off our own alpha. Um, but but it, it's on, been on either side of, of neutral for most of the year um, just because we think that, the, that there's craziness in our little world, in our world of coinbases and, and things like that. Um, and I'm more than happy, as I've said for the last couple of years on your show, to own the S&P, own the NASDAQ, broadly speaking, against that in our hedge fund. In our short fund, it's different. People are looking for the downside protection. Um, and, and that's been pretty fully invested all year. But you know, as it relates to, to the overall market, it's obviously a tug of war, right? It's a tug of war between people at this point who think the Fed are gonna blink, because let's face it, I mean, the market took off in June as soon as people began to firmly believe that the Fed would pivot in 2023. So this is a market that, I, the one thing I would say that worries me, this is a market that still seems beholden to central bank policy. Hmm and 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 you know, over the intermediate term. and and as soon as it looked like inflation expectations were creeping back up in August and rates started going back up, you know we've started to get some indigestion again. Um, meanwhile, I mean, companies, I think Jim Kramer pointed out you know this morning, kind of aptly, companies are kind of all over the map, right? There's companies reporting you know decent numbers. There's also companies reporting really bad numbers. Um, and so we're trying to take advantage of that dispersion generally. Are you not a believer in the pivot idea? Look, I mean, the Fed's going to do whatever it's going to do, uh, you know, and, and, and it's, been, it's been wrong to bet against them being too dovish for the last 10 years. That may be what got us to where we are today, however. And, and um, I, you know, I, as I keep saying, what happens if commodity prices start going back up again? Um, you know, we've all convinced that we've seen the peak of that and the peak of this. But having lived through the 70s, I also remember what markets were like. Um, The Fed eased about three or four times aggressively in the 70s after tightening. And it just kept leading to higher and higher um, uh, problems of tightening, ultimately culminating Volcker in 79. So um, they definitely don't want to repeat that that experiment. Um, And so we'll, we'll, like everybody else, I guess we'll just have to see. I guess we will. I appreciate the time, as always. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you guys. All right,
1: you as well. That's Jim Chanos again joining us today uh, exclusively. We have more trades ahead. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. Palo Alto is the best performer in the NASDAQ 100 today on pace for its best day since February. The cyber company beating earnings estimates, also announcing a three for one stock split. Jenny Harrington, as you know, owns it, joins us now on the phone. Their guidance was good, too. I mean, there is nothing to hate on with this report, right, Jenny?
8: This was terrific. Um, It was just a really strong quarter overall. 27% revenue growth, billings up 44%, three for one stock split, billion dollar buyback. It was terrific.
1: Is this the only cyber stock that you own? And if so, why is this the one?
8: It is. So in this one, you've got that nice mix of the story working well, but the valuation also being compelling. So on Palo Alto, they have $2 billion of um, of cash flow coming, and it's got a 4% free cash flow yield. I think one of the things that people get tripped up on is looking at it on an earnings basis. Their earnings are funky because of the way they need to report revenues and the accounting side, so you really want to look at it on a free cash flow yield, and on that basis, it's really compelling. Scott, one thing that you guys were talking about earlier in the show that I think is interesting is you're talking about can you own tech, and while I was listening to that, I was thinking to myself, well, it sure depends, and I think this is one where you can own it, and you can own it for a very, very long time because I think there's an insatiable, eternal demand for the services that Palo Alto offer offers. And one of the things that we were talking about in-house here, we were kind of laughing about it before, and um, my partner Greg was saying, you know, they have revenue growth ahead for the next decade. And I said, don't they have revenue growth ahead basically until the zombie apocalypse comes and there's no technology to be used? But I think somewhere in between those two things is real. There is likely to be revenue growth forever and ever and ever as we get more and more digital and there's a higher um, pervasive eternal threat of cyber attacks. Mm. So this this is what I want to own in tech all day long, for a long time.
1: You and a lot of other people today, up 12%. Jenny, thanks so much. That's Jenny Harrington. We'll see you back on the show soon. Your pick is Fortinet. Remains as such.
3: Yeah. And I've been buying it. It's down 18 percent from its recent highs because they did disappoint on the quarter. But disappointing is billings up only up 34 percent services, billings up 36 percent and product billings actually north of 30 percent, five quarters in a row. So to me, there's no disappointment there. They have the growth like Jenny was just mentioning. And it trades actually at a a much less multiple than uh, Palo Alto.
2: CrowdStrike still yours or no? Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with what uh, Jenny is saying. It is a guarantee that as more and more of our lives and our commerce, more importantly, our financials move on to the Web, the demand in this particular space within SaaS, anything to do with cybersecurity, network security, it's a given. Now, the only question is who executes, who takes market share? I happen to think CrowdStrike's Falcon platform is the best there is. Um, based on what I've read, so that's why I'm invested there. Michael
1: Farr, no cyber for you? He loves
2: the cyber. What are you talking uh, about?
1: I, I'm,
5: <laughs> uh, not, <laughs> right, of course. How could you not? You know, I, 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 own, uh, I, I own, I guess, PayPal uh, out there. I started to nibble there in my uh, toe in the water in cyber. And, of course, I own some of the Amazon and the other things. But a company, again... Uh, you know, Baird recommended him today. And the second quarter was up 10 percent uh, 21 times next year. Growing earnings at 15 percent. I think there are places you can invest in cyber.
1: Mm. Uh, speaking of, you mentioned a call there from Baird on PayPal. They go outperform, as, as you're just mentioning now. Uh, City reiterating Walmart and Target today mm. as buys. You own Target. You could say these are controversial call in the current environment. What do you make of it?
3: We have have time on Target and on Walmart because they have to work through the inventories. But I think at 14 times earnings and still seeing traffic growth and market share gains is worth buying, is worth picking at it if you have patience for the long term. But you've got to get to the next quarter to see if they can really work this inventory down. It was encouraging that they did guide operating margins to be 6% in the second half of this year. They just did 1.2 in operating margin this last quarter. So a big reversal. If that happens... The stock is much higher.
4: Liz Young, where are you on retail? If we're talking about discount retail and you're somebody who's worried about a recession coming in the next 12 months, I think that this is a great entry point. I think to Steph's point, the inventory issues that they've dealt with probably are in the rear view mirror and probably the worst that it's going to get. So I think they're OK places to be.
1: All right. We'll take a quick break. Final trades coming up next.
0: Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the
6: Halftime Podcast now. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern time
1: today, three hours from now, OT with Joe T. He's going to be with me today. Joe Terranova is. We'll get the PIMCO playbook from Aaron Brown. We got Casey Newton, Alex Kanchowitz. Of course, he got the Twitter saga. This new development today with that whistleblower, we're going to kick that around. Uh, Much more coming up in a few hours. I'll see all of you then. Let's do final trade. Stephanie Ling.
3: Corteva. I like the ag cycle. They have pricing power. They also have a cost-cutting program, so I think margins have a lot of upside from here. And I like the CEO, former Honeywell CFO. All
1: right, thank you. Liz Young, what's your final trade today?
4: I think you can hide out in healthcare care during this chop, even after the summer rally still trading below the index, and it's a good place to be for both growth and defense in the large cap space. Okay,
5: Mr. Farr. I like Raytheon here at these levels uh, more for the long term. I'm not sure about trading it, but 10 percent grower, 17 times earnings and a 2.4 percent dividend while you wait. I own it. I'll continue to own it. All right. And
2: finally, Josh Brown. Unfortunately, I think we're at 50 50 odds of a recession in the next 12 months. That's what the market's expectation is as well. Encore works with underwater borrowers of credit card debt to help them get out from under it and earn a profit along the way. This is, I think, the way that I want to play it.
1: All right. I appreciate it everybody. I will see you in just a few hours in overtime for now. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
0: You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.